Hello, you're listening to the New Discourses Podcast. This is James Lindsay, and I have been, um, I've begun a process of, of reading through Herbert Marcuse's Repressive Tolerance in a number of parts. This will be the second part of that project. I don't know how many it will have in the end, probably five. It's a long essay. The reason I'm doing this, just in brief, and then I'll summarize part one for you, the reason I'm doing this is because I want to convince you that the logic of the left today is the logic of this essay, Repressive Tolerance, which was written by the neo-Marxist philosopher Herbert Marcuse in 1965. Um, its publication preceded the violence that we saw in the riots of 67, 68, and 69, and my argument really is that the violence we saw through 2020 and since the extraordinary toleration in particular for left-wing violence and the absolute censorship of right-wing anything is the logic of this essay come back into the public square. And I want people to understand this essay. I've asked people to read it. People find it hard to read, so I want to read through it and give my commentary and explain it as we go. And I'm reading the whole thing. So like I said, this is part two, so we're picking up somewhere it looks like a little short of a quarter of the way through the essay. In part one, we read the first, I gave some historical context for Marcuse, the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory, um, the reflection of Popper's uh, paradox of tolerance, which I think Marcuse is submitting this as sort of a bad solution to, and I tried to lay out just the beginning of the essay to show the extraordinary asymmetry from the very beginning, the extraordinary totalitarianism and asymmetry that Herbert Marcuse is recommending in repressive tolerance in favor of radical and revolutionary left-wing thought to the suppression, repression, and censorship of anything that he could could declare as right-wing thought. Some of the big themes that, that jumped out from part one that, that we covered so far is that certain behaviors, the, the, first of all, the critical theorists have the ability to tell right and wrong and truth and false better than other people. And upon that basis, they are more able to work toward liberation, which is good, and prevent the maintenance of the, the automatically oppressive status quo, which is bad. And that's the justification for needing a biased form of tolerance. And in fact, part one wrapped up with us seeing Marcusa very explicitly, and I'll, I'll hit this part again, um, talking about how we can maybe be indiscriminate in philosophical debates as far as what we tolerate. We can tolerate a wider range of things if it's philosophy or science or religion or, or just discussion. But when the operation of society is at stake, we cannot be indiscriminate in our tolerance. We have to be very discriminating in our tolerance, and we have to be very tolerant of things that he approves of that lead toward liberation in the critical theorist estimation, and very intolerant of anything that stops that. The last, I guess it's one sentence that we left off with at part one, reads, but society cannot be indiscriminate where the pacification of existence, where freedom and happiness themselves are at stake. Here, certain things cannot be said. Certain ideas cannot be expressed. Certain policies cannot be proposed. Certain behavior cannot be permitted without making tolerance an instrument for the continuation of servitude. So his argument to that point has culminated with the idea that if we Look at the level of the operation of society with policy and the ideas that, that are being shared. This is very, very, should be reminiscent of what we're seeing um, with this big tech censorship that we're running into right now, for example, with the legislation being passed about so-called domestic terrorism uh, in the wake of the capital incidents from the 6th of January, 2021. And the claim here is, that if when we're talking about the operation of society, that is that if certain things are able to be said, like the, perhaps the, the the claim that the election had significant enough irregularities to where it may be fraudulent, or have been stolen, or that there needs to be a movement to stop the steal, or that there needs to be a movement even for transparency in future elections, then at that in that case, because that upholds the status quo of society. 
Marcuse is arguing that we have we cannot allow those things to be said because if we say those things it makes if we tolerate those things being expressed then it creates the instrument that be, the, that very tolerance becomes he says the instrument for the continuation of servitude so this is the logic behind the tech censorship the the, the democratic party's reactions and they're on the other hand, absolute tolerance of far worse that proceeded all through 2020. So, I, again, my point here, I don't want to do a long preamble, but my point here, because it's part two of several and it's long as it is, is that we are living in the logic of this essay. This essay, Repressive Tolerance, has become something of an anthem for the political left, and its logic is what's determining the entire asymmetry of our playing field. So I want to unpack this essay. I want people to, to come in contact with this and engage it and understand it. It's very important to realize that this is what we're living in. Why is it important to realize it? Because if you realize it, then you can see it. And if you understand it, then you can explain it. And if you can see it and you can explain it, then you can get people to realize not just this intuitive sense that it might be bogus or must be bogus, but they can actually articulate why it's bogus. And they have to, they can understand what the, the manipulations are, what's happening, why it's illegitimate, and they can speak with enough authority to start pushing back against it. And in fact, my claim from part one where I read, I actually read um, the footnote from Karl Popper's, uh, what is it, Open Society and Its Enemies, where he outlines the paradox of tolerance, I point out there that in fact, the woke movement, the left itself, has become the repressive. We could call them, we've called them regressive left, we've called them woke, we could call them the repressive left at this point. And that would capture stuff like what's outside of just the woke aspect of this. The repressive left is itself in violation of the conditions laid out in the paradox of tolerance and is therefore the thing that needs not be tolerated. If we want to have a free society, if we want to have a liberal society where tolerance becomes and maintains as the norm, where we're free, we have to be able to see that what's going on from this literally repressive left operating in the logic of this essay, Repressive Tolerance from 1965, that I'm reading to you now, we have to see that that is actually outside of the bounds of the kind of thing that we should tolerate in a liberal society. <clears throat> so without further ado, Part two, we pick up, like I said, about a quarter of the way into the essay, and we pick up straight. Here's Marcusa. The danger of destructive tolerance, Baudelaire, of benevolent neutrality toward art has been recognized. The market, which absorbs equally well, although with often quite sudden fluctuations, art, anti-art, and non-art, all possible conflicting styles, schools, forms, provides a complacent receptacle, a friendly abyss, in which the radical impact of art, the protest of art against the established reality, is swallowed up. Okay, so there's already this reference to Baudelaire here that has to be kind of unpacked a little bit. I'm not going to claim that I'm an expert in Baudelaire. Baudelaire was a poet and art critic and uh, literary critic, I believe, Charles Baudelaire. And he, part of his criticism was that the market, I mean, it's exactly what, what, what Marcuse just pointed out, is that the market is open and has this destructive tolerance to art itself because it allows in art, that which is defined here as anti-art and non-art. Maybe that's like propaganda posters. Maybe that's just trashy crap. I mean, I think a lot of us would agree that the postmodern art might qualify as anti-art or non-art, but we treat it an upside down world like in clown world like it's real art um Baudelaire complained that this creates a complacent receptacle a friendly abyss that was that's his words into which art itself is actually rendered impotent and so um in particular though you hear you hear exactly what Marcuse is talking about he says that the radical impact of art the protest of art against the established reality gets swallowed up. So it can't just be art. The things that people like to look at, it has, if it, for, there's almost this same disgusting bias all throughout all this critical theory stuff, where if it's not serving the radical goal, it's not the real, it's not the real article. It's somehow bad. 
It's not enough if you like the art. That's not good, right? It has to have protest, the protest of art against the established reality. And Baudelaire's critique was that by calling things that are not art or anti-art, art, and letting the market, that's the key, the market which absorbs equally well these things, creates a complacent receptacle, a friendly abyss, and that radicalism of art is destroyed. Never mind if you like it. It's got to be radical or it's not good. Okay, so this is where we're talking about. So Marcuse has got this exact kind of mentality. Remember, he says, the danger of destructive tolerance. It's destructive to tolerate the wrong kind of art. The danger of destructive tolerance of benevolent neutrality toward art has been recognized, he says, in that part that I've just read twice. And he goes on, however, censorship of art and literature is regressive under all circumstances. Hear that disrupt text? The authentic oeuvre is not and cannot be a prop of oppression in pseudo-art, which can be such a prop, is not art. Oh, that's how he gets around it. It's not authentic art or literature. It's pseudo-art if it's a prop of oppression. Now, I get that with propaganda. I get that with propaganda. But nevertheless, if it's the wrong kind of art, it's pseudo-art. If it props up oppression, it's pseudo-art. Doesn't matter if, if people like it, it doesn't matter. And remember, these guys are super anti capitalists. So, commercials, you know, art that serves, maybe you're really into something like Coca Cola and you do Coca Cola based art. Doesn't matter how good your art is, doesn't matter how creative it is, doesn't matter how it makes people feel. We want to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony, all of it. It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Real, authentic art cannot be a prop of oppression. Capitalism is oppression for these guys. And pseudo-art, which can be such a prop, is not art. So he says, censorship of art and literature is regressive under all circumstances. And then he says, eh, except the stuff we want to, <laughs> the stuff we want to censor is not actually art. What's real art? Marcusa goes on, art stands against history, withstands history, which has been the history of oppression. So the true history is the history of oppression. You have to understand it that way. And art is that which withstands it, real art. Marcusa says, for art subjects realities to laws other than the established ones, to the laws of the form, that's capitalized, so we're talking platonic, to the laws of the form which creates a different reality, negation of the established one, even where art depicts the established reality. A lot to unpack here because we're in that same dialectical religion, that Hegelian religion I say this whole thing is, and Marcusa cites Hegel all over the freaking place in all of his writing. So... I'm not making that up. I'm not inserting that. That's actually what he's talking about here. When he's talking about negation here, and we're going to get some harder proof of that in a minute, um, he's talking about the Hegelian thesis, antithesis, synthesis process by which the contradictions of reality are revealed. And so what he's saying here is that art is what challenges the oppressions of real art is what challenges the oppressions of history, that it even when it depicts established reality, it does so in a way it does so in a way that negates its con it lifts up and it exposes its contradictions and negates the oppression and leads to liberation. So he's very clear here. He says, sounds good, right? Censorship of art and literature is regressive under all circumstances. You take that out of context and it sounds pretty good. But then what you realize is he then spends the rest of this paragraph defining art as that which does what he wants and everything else as pseudo art or anti art or non art. Same for literature. Okay, so to carry on, Marcusa, but in its struggle with history, history again, Marxist and Hegelian term, it's a thing that unfolds, it has a process, it has its own logic. It's not history, necessarily history in and of, you know, what happened before. So, but in its struggle with history, art subjects itself to history. History enters the definition of art and enters into the distinction between art and pseudo-art. So that which is progressing history through the dialectical process becomes art. That which does not is pseudo-art. If it's art on the right side of history, it's art. If it's art on the wrong side of history, it's pseudo-art. See what he's doing here? See what he's doing here? Okay. Thus it happens, he says, that, was what, that what was once art becomes pseudo-art. So even as history progresses, that which was 
was liberatory, that which changed the world 50 years ago, becomes that which upholds oppression today. That which was once art becomes pseudo-art. Previous forms, styles, and qualities, previous modes of protest and refusal cannot be recaptured in or against a different society. There are cases where an authentic oeuvre carries a regressive political message. Dostoevsky is a case in point. But then the message is canceled by the oeuvre itself. The regressive political content is absorbed. Aufgehoben in the artistic form, in the work as literature. So there, Aufgehoben, what the heck? That's not an English word. No, that's a German word. And it's a complicated German word, and it is the word that appears around that Hegelian dialectical process. It can be translated, if you look it up, just translate this, it's in good hands, kept in good hands. But it also means to cancel, to annul, to negate, to, to, to um, obliterate. And so it has this weird meaning, which is to take apart but keep, to, 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 to negate but, but maintain in good hands. So it's this idea that, that based off of this Hegelian philosophy that if you negate things in the right way and that but you keep their, their essence and you, and you synthesize it the right way, that you get to something bigger and better. Okay, so this is a very Hegelian read. Like I said, it has this whole idea. Like he even says that art, which was art, which means for him that, 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 that succeeded in the historical process and pushing the historical process along toward liberation, later becomes pseudo-art. It becomes that which maintains oppression. Because why, he says, because it, it cannot be recaptured in or against a different society. If society changes, the nature of the art changes. So that which was transgressive 50 years ago and produced progress is not transgressive now. Um, this is this is a very, when you understand what he's talking about, this is a very um, self-serving way of thinking. And you can see that that seed of the destruction of art, the destruction of art from history, that which was, even if it was good, even if you had a cartoon, for example, like uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer Claymation Christmas Classic, which was a very anti-bullying message, Island of Misfit Toys, the Misfits are all like great, but they're the heroes. It's anti-bullying, but now it's problematic because it it, it depicts an older way of thinking about these things, and it still has problematic elements from, the, say, the 1950s, I think, when it was made. So it's no longer transgressive. It's now repressive. And so, therefore, it's no longer art, which it may have been in the first place. It's now pseudo-art. So this kind of continual destruction of that which was. Pretty cool, huh? That's what he's up to. That's the world we live in right now. That's the logic behind this. The morals that we had a few years ago aren't good enough anymore. Canceled. And we're talking literally canceled. Aufgehoben. He says it literally in German. Tolerance of free speech, he goes on, is the way of improvement, of progress and liberation. Not because there is no objective truth. An improvement must necessarily be a compromise between a variety of opinions, but because there is an objective truth which can be discovered, ascertained only in learning and comprehending, that which is, and that which can be, and ought to be done for the sake of improving the lot of mankind. You catch that? Sounds good at first, and then you're like, wait a minute. Tolerance of free speech is a way of improvement, the, pro the progress of progress and liberation, not because there's no objective truth, that's what he says. Oh, this sounds good. This is great. An improvement must necessarily be a compromise, he says, between a variety of opinions. But no, that's not why. That's not why. It's not about compromise. It's not about a lack of objective truth. It's because there is an objective truth that can be discovered. And you're like, yes, that's right. But then he goes and he says, ascertained only in learning and comprehending that which is. That's actually understanding the world. That's traditional theory. And then he slips into critical theory. And that which can be and ought to be done for the sake of improving the lot of mankind, as he defines it. This common and historical ought is not immediately evident at hand. It has to be uncovered by cutting through, splitting, breaking asunder, discutio, the given material, separating right and wrong, good and bad, correct and incorrect. In other words, you've got to use critical theory. The subject whose improvement depends upon a progressive historical practice is each man as man, 
And this universality is reflected in that of the discussion which a priori does not exclude any group or individual, but even the all-inclusive character of liberalist tolerance was, at least in theory, based on the proposition that men were potential individuals who could learn to hear and see and feel by themselves, to develop their own thoughts, to grasp their true interests and rights and capabilities, also against the established authority and opinion. This was the rationale of free speech and assembly. Universal toleration becomes questionable when its rationale no longer prevails. When tolerance is administered to manipulated and indoctrinated individuals who parrot as their own the opinion of their masters for whom heteronomy has become autonomy. A lot of heavy-duty words, it sounds like, but what's he talking about here? So we already covered at the beginning of this paragraph, he's saying that you have to have to, to understand the proper ought, you have to be able to uh, cut through the given material. You need critical theory is what he means. Um, then he says that the preconditions basically of understanding, of, of using free speech, the preconditions of using free speech, the all-inclusive character, he says, of liberalist tolerance was at least in theory based on the proposition that men were potential individuals, potential individuals, who could learn to hear and see and feel by themselves to develop their own thoughts, to grasp their true interests and rights and capabilities, also against established authority and opinion. And then what he goes on to do is say, that's not possible. That's not true. This, he says, was the rationale of free speech and assembly. Universal toleration becomes questionable when, that, when, when its rationale no longer prevails. And so you have to remember these guys as critical theorists believe that everybody has false consciousness, except them. They have critical consciousness. They've awakened. Everybody else has false consciousness and wants to maintain the status quo. So when he says, when he goes on to say that tolerance is questionable when tolerance is administered to manipulated and indoctrinated individuals, that's you, that's everybody who's not a critical theorist, who parrot as their own the opinions of their masters. False consciousness, internalized racism, internalized sexism, internalized misogyny, internalized transphobia, internalized homophobia. Parrot as their own the opinion of their masters. In other words, whoever's got the power in society, I suppose, is what he means by that. But he, he's talking about liberal society. For whom heteronomy has become autonomy. Heteronomy means that you're getting your opinions from lots of places, lots of other people. Autonomy is that you're making your own decisions. So the claim here is that the will of society is getting into individuals who are no longer able to comprehend, what does he say, learn to hear and see and feel by themselves. You're not that. The world is conditioning you everywhere you go. So you're not that. So toleration in such a, in such a situation becomes questionable, he says. Don't worry, the critical theorists know better than you. That's what he's arguing. And his thesis is going to boil down to, you have to tolerate everything we do, and we're going to tolerate nothing that goes against us. That is the thesis of this essay. It is the most totalitarian piece of writing. Hiding is not totalitarianism since Mein Kampf. It's incredible that people saw this as liberatory rather than as exactly the opposite. So he goes on, the telos, the purpose, of tolerance is truth. It is clear from the historical record that the authentic spokesman of tolerance had more and other truth in mind than that of propositional logic and academic theory. John Stuart Mill speaks of the truth which is persecuted in history and which does not triumph over persecution by virtue of its inherent power, which in fact has no inherent power against the dungeon and the stake. And he enumerates the truths which were cruel, quote, air quotes around truths, uh, scare quotes, I should say. And he enumerates the scare quotes, quotes truths, which were cruelly and successfully liquidated in the dungeons and at the stake, that of Arnold of Brescia, Fraud Dolcino, of uh, Savonarola, of the Albin, I don't know all these people, sorry, Albigensians, Walden, Waldensians, the Lollards, and the Hussites. So all people who were oppressed by uh, cruel regimes in general. Tolerance is first and foremost for the sake of the heretics. The historical road toward humanitas appears as heresy, target of persecution by the powers that be. Heresy by itself, however, is no token 
of truth. So he's not totally off base here, okay? So what he's saying is that the corrupt powers will persecute people who are speaking the truth against them. And he's pointing out that truth itself doesn't really have any power against genuine persecution. You actually are going to have to probably fight for it or something. And so tolerance, he says, is first and foremost for the sake of heretics, people who are speaking out against these repressive regimes. Remember, he thinks that free societies are repressive regimes, so it's important to keep that in mind. But the historical road toward humanitas, toward hum like humanism, appears as heresy, target of persecution by the powers that be. Heresy by itself, wisely he notes, is no token of truth. Just disagreeing with the powers doesn't mean you're necessarily right. However, you can guarantee you that if you're speaking truth to power, what he's arguing is that the powers are going to come after you with the with the uh, the, in, the 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 power, the inherent power of the dungeon and the stake. In other words, they'll imprison you or or kill you if you speak truth to power. He's not totally wrong there. This isn't insane, but you have to remember the insane part is that he thinks that liberal free societies like America are repressive regimes in exactly that same way because they're not communist utopias. And I don't exaggerate. That's what he means. We covered that in part one. You should go back and listen. So continuing with Marcuse, the criterion of progress in freedom according to which Mill judges these movements is the Reformation. The evaluation is ex post and his list includes opposites. Savonarola would have, be, would have burned Fra Dolcino. Even the ex-post evaluation is contestable as to its truth. So what he's saying there is that one power, just because because just because one power is somewhat better, it doesn't mean that it's actually true, and it would still just be uh, would be terribly oppressive. That that can also be correct. Even the ex-post evaluation is contestable as to its truth. History corrects the judgment too late. So the truth outs, but it doesn't do it until after oppression has occurred, after massacres have occurred, after there's been widespread persecution, is what he's arguing here, which is true, which is why we have to pay attention to the woke threat that he's unleashed. Um, history corrects the judgment too late. The correction does not help the victims and does not absolve their executioners. Hear that, Wokies? However, the lesson is clear. Intolerance has delayed progress and has prolonged the slaughter and torture of innocents for hundreds of years. Does this clinch the case for indiscriminate pure tolerance? Are there historical conditions in which such toleration impedes liberation and multiplies the victims who are sacrificed to the status quo? Okay, so you see, do you see where he's screwing himself up here? It's really important to catch this. For him, that which is the status quo, that which is the powers that be, is always repressive. For him, there is no such thing as a not repressive, um, tyrannical status quo, if you will. I've argued in the past, you maybe have heard on this podcast, I've argued in the past that liberalism is, in fact, by definition, antithetical to the establishment of a status quo. So this is all a canard. But he's taking these actual totalitarian regimes and then saying that free societies like the United States, the United Kingdom, Western Europe, and so on in the 1960s and since are themselves the same kind of totalitarian awful things, that's where he's going wrong, right? He's got a point, and the point is correct, but he's applying it to the wrong thing. That's where it's nuts. And if you don't understand that that's what he's got in mind, it doesn't make any, what he's saying, you're like, oh yeah, what he's saying makes total sense. You can't argue against that. But he's applying it to something to which it doesn't apply, which is, and I do get it. I mean, he's writing this in 65. The civil rights movement is still in a nasty full swing. It's just been really gross, really violent, really ugly. Um, Jim Crow and segregation just ended. There's still all the backlash to that. I get where he's writing this from. And we're, I'm not going to discount that because he has, if you, if you flash back to 1965, he has a massive point. If you flash forward to 1985, which is still pretty backwards by our standards now, this point has evaporated. Okay. So the fact that the logic of this un was unleashed post Civil Rights Act is already bad enough. Civil Rights Act was in 64. He wrote this in 65. It erupted in 67, 68, 69. 
But the fact that it's erupting again now is literally insane. It's literally off the rails. And it's because the movement that he unleashed has become the intolerant thing that he would be criticizing. Except, fascinatingly, I don't think he would criticize it. As we'll see further in the essay, I don't think he would actually criticize the woke movement because it's for the thing he wants. And he's he'd, he'd be in this weird position where he has to repudiate the thing because it's the thing he's against, but he would have to be for the thing because it's working in the name of the thing that he wants, using the logic that he says justifies everything that he's doing. So I don't even know how he would fall on this. Um, I do know, for instance, just a sidebar that Marcusa gave an interview in the 70s before he died on television where he said that his movement had been filled with anti-intellectuals and that it had turned kind of ugly. So there's a good chance he would repudiate the woke movement, but it's really hard to say, as we'll see. But to go back to him, are there historical conditions in which such toleration impedes liberation and multiplies the victims who are sacrificed to the status quo? Can the indiscriminate guarantee of political rights and liberties be repressive? Sure. Can such tolerance serve to contain qualitative social change? And the answer to that is yes. Obviously, if you're tolerant of an intolerance uh, power state or whatever, it can be a real problem. He's right about that. The question is, what is he applying it to? So we, we've, we've discussed that at length. We'll just carry on. I shall discuss this question only with reference to political movements, attitudes, schools of thoughts, philosophies, which are political in the widest sense, affecting the society as a whole, demonstrably transcending the sphere of privacy. Hear that, Wokies? Moreover, I propose a shift in the focus of the discussion. It will be concerned not only and not primarily with tolerance toward radical extremes, minorities, subversives, etc., but rather with tolerance toward majorities, toward official and public opinion, toward the established protectors of freedom. So what he's going to do is criticize that idea. He's going to criticize the idea that we're going to have tolerance toward majorities, toward official and public opinion, toward the established protectors of freedom. In this case, the discussion can have as a frame of reference only a democratic society in which the people, as individuals and as members of political and other organizations, participate in the making, sustaining, and changing policies. In an authoritarian system, the people do not tolerate. They suffer established policies. Hear that, Democrats? Hear that, tech? Hear that, Wokies? So this is why I don't know which side of things Marcuse would fall on today, because it's his stuff, and he's justifying the repressive tolerance that's the point of this essay, and yet he, in this paragraph, he basically disavows what's actually happening in the name of his own project. Pretty fascinating place in the world to be in. Under a system of constitutionally guaranteed and generally and without too many and too glaring exceptions, practice civil rights and liberties, Opposition and dissent are tolerated unless they issue in violence and or in exhortation to an organization of violent subversion. So if you're not inciting, you're okay in a system of constitutionally guaranteed and practiced civil rights and liberties. That's what he's saying. The underlying assumption is that the established society is free and that any improve. He's going to criticize this, by the way. The underlying assumption is that the established society is free and that any improvement, even a change in the social structure and social values, would come about in the normal course of events, prepared, defined, and tested in free and equal discussion on the open marketplace of ideas and goods. Now, recalling John Stuart Mill's passage, I drew attention to the premise hidden in this assumption. Free and equal discussion can fulfill the function attributed to it only if it is rational expression and development of independent thinking free from indoctrination, manipulation, extraneous authority. Remember, he doesn't think that free societies allow that because everybody has false consciousness except the critical theorists, which he, he happens to be one of, lucky for him and us, to tell us. The notion of pluralism and countervailing powers is no substitute for this requirement, he writes. One might, in theory, construct a state in which a multitude of different pressures, interests, and authorities balance each other out and result in a truly general and rational interest. However, such a construction badly fits a society in which powers are and remain unequal and even increase their unequal weight when they run their own course. 
It fits even worse when the variety of pressures unifies and coagulates into an overwhelming whole, integrating the particular countervailing powers by virtue of an increasing standard of living, an increasing concentration of power. So what he's talking about here is that we, in the post-war United States, we had this situation. We had people having an increasing standard of living, the middle class was booming, everybody was happy, but at the same time, the state was growing and increasing concentration of power in what would rightly be named neoliberalism, in which we would now, like the, both people on the right and the left, would criticize um, as being a, a, I mean, the right on the right they call it the deep state, and on the on the left they call it uh, neoliberalism or neoconservatism. Uh, neoconservatism would have come later, obviously, than than 1965, but it was in development. And so the, the the idea that the operating of this kind of like super unistate in the U.S. Um, that's the thing he's criticizing. So he has a point here, of course, but I think again he goes too far. Um, so where were we? Um, so in that kind of a situation where you have. Um, an increasing standard of living, an increasing concentration of power, this is a bad fit for that model that he's talking about. Then the laborer, remember he's communist, whose real interest conflicts with that of management, the common consumer whose real interest conflicts with that of the producer, the intellectual whose vocation conflicts with that of his employer, find themselves submitting to a system against which they are powerless and appear unreasonable. <laughs> Sounds like what people are actually having to deal with today, right? Having to buy woke products they don't want, having to work in companies where they're shoved into critical race theory trainings that they don't want, and uh, where the academics have to profess this crap and write their diversity things that they don't want, and they have to submit to a system against which they are powerless and appear unreasonable. Uh-oh, Wokies. What Marcusa is saying is the world that you have created is the world that he is criticizing. And if we were to follow his advice and hold you to your own standard, as uh, one Alinsky would recommend, you're on the wrong side of this. You're on the wrong side of Popper, too. That's not good for you, Wokies. But anyway, that's a, that's a sidebar. Um, the idea, he says, the idea of the available alternatives evaporates into an utterly utopian dimension and in which it is at home for a free society is indeed unrealistically and undefinably different from the existing ones. Under these circumstances, whatever improvement may occur in the normal course of events and without subversion is likely to be an improvement in the direction determined by the particular interests which control the whole. So in other words, what he says is incremental progress in a corrupt system is only going to serve the corrupt system. It is not going to actually create freedom from a corrupt system. Has a point. Again, what does it get applied to? By the same token, so here's we have the explicit call to what became the identity politics. Remember that Herbert Marcuse was the PhD advisor of the very radical black feminist Angela Davis, um, who is kind of at the heart of the prison abolitionist movement right now and very much active and behind Black Lives Matter. She's been being profiled very positively despite being a train wreck of of an activist, supported unequivocally supported Jim Jones and his his uh, death cult and all of this stuff. So he radicalized her. He really was instrumental in confusing kind of the black liberation movement that he was helping to build in the 1960s, which is very radical, fusing that into the critical theory movement. So by the same token, he writes, those minorities which strive for a change of the whole itself will, under optimal conditions, which rarely prevail, will be left free to deliberate, sorry, to deliberate and discuss, to speak and to assemble, and will be left harmless and helpless in the face of the overwhelming majority which militates against qualitative social change. So he's saying that the white majority here will tell the black people, yeah, go talk, go talk amongst yourselves, go go agitate, go protest, go do whatever you want. And nothing's going to happen because we have the majority power. That's what that's what he's saying. And so this would be one of the ways that the critical race theorists believe that black re revolutionary will is drained from black people. And you see the seed of it is right here. It's explicitly written right there. He writes, this majority is firmly grounded in the increasing satisfaction of needs 
and technological and mental coordination which testified to the general helplessness of radical groups in a well-functioning social system. He's, he's basically arguing that by giving radicals the ability to talk and act, do activism and protest, as long as they stay within certain boundaries, they neuter those radical groups and prevent them from being able to make any substantive social change. And so this is a core belief in, in critical race theory and critical theory in general. And Marcuse is laying it out here. And of course, that's the thing that's going to have to be fought against. That's what repressive tolerance is going to have to repress, the tolerance to do that. And, and, and then the intolerance of, say, a black radical militant group getting militant and violent, say, by rioting and looting all summer. Again, we live in the logic of this essay. In 2020 and 2021, we live in the logic of this essay. Since 2015, at least, we live in the logic of this essay. The academy, many universities, has lived in this, the logic of this essay for a little longer, um, maybe a decade longer than that. Within the affluent democracy, the affluent discussion prevails. And within the established framework, it is tolerant to a large extent. All points of view can be heard, the communist and the fascist, the left and the right, the white and the negro, the crusaders for armament and for disarmament. Moreover, in endlessly dragging debates over the media, <laughs> yeah, I hear you, buddy, the stupid opinion is treated with the same respect as the intelligent one. Of course, he has the intelligent one, by the way. The misinformed may talk as long as the informed. <laughs> Anybody watching CNN right now? And propaganda rides along with education, truth with falsehood. Too true, buddy. Too true. Isn't it funny how he's describing the world we live in, yet it's his world? Isn't that funny? This is what, this is, it's just really profound to, to see that when you understand that that's what he's talking about. We, the, it's so visceral for us because we're living in the world he's describing as bad, but it's because of his thing that the world is that way. It's his thing that is the bad thing now. It's just amazing. This pure toleration of sense and nonsense is justified by the democratic argument that nobody, neither group nor individual, is in possession of the truth and capable of, capable of defining what is right and wrong, good and bad. Therefore, all contesting opinions must be submitted to the people for its deliberation and choice. But I've already suggested that the democratic argument implies a necessary condition, namely that the people must be capable of deliberating and choosing on the basis of knowledge that they must have access to the authentic information and that on this basis, their evaluation must be the result of autonomous thought. Remember, he says that we don't have that. We live in false consciousness. So the precondition for the, the, the state of tolerance in society, he says, is not met. He's building up the argument that we're going to have to repress things in favor of certain other things. In the contemporary period, the democratic argument for abstract tolerance tends to be invalidated by the invalidation of the democratic process itself. They love these silly-ass sentences. The liberating force of democracy was the chance it gave to effective dissent on the individual as well as, on the, as, as, well as social scale. Its openness to qualitatively different forms of government, of culture, education, work, of the human existence in general. The toleration of free discussion and the equal right of opposites was to define and clarify the different forms of dissent, the direction, content, prospect. But with the concentration of economic and political power and the integration of opposites in a society which uses technology as an instrument of domination, effective dissent is blocked where it could freely emerge in the formation of opinion and information and communication in speech and assembly. And again, we're in that weird paradoxical situation now where it's like, crap, that's where we live, but you created it, right? Because he's saying that we have this, we have this, this issue where we can't think of a different world because of the nature of the repressive regime, this repressive by definition, by being a status quo. He says, the toleration of free discussion and the equal rights of opposite, uh, equal right of opposites was to define and clarify the different forms of dissent, their direction, content, and prospect. That way, you know, dissent can be there, but it won't be too much. It won't really change anything. He says, but with the concentration of economic and political power and the integration of opposites, there's your dialectical process again. Don't miss it. And the integration of opposites in a society which uses technology as a as an instrument of domination. Sound familiar? 
Effective descent, I wonder if we could name anything that would be effective descent, stop the steal, is blocked where it could freely emerge in the formation of opinion and in information and communication and speech and assembly. You can have right-wing, pro- left-wing protests, but you can't have right-wing ones. You'll get COVID. Under the rule of monopolistic media, <laughs> I mean, seriously, under the rule of monopolistic media, themselves the mere instruments of economic and political power, for sure, a mentality is created for which right and wrong, true and false, are predefined wherever they affect the vital interests of society. Sound familiar, guys? This is, prior to all expression and communication, a matter of semantics. The blocking of effective dissent, of the recognition of that which is not the establishment, which brings, which begins in the language that is publicized and administered. This is, this, this, this is what we live in, and again, it's the thing he created, as we will see. The meaning of words is rigidly stabilized. Okay, so that's a little bit opposite of what we have going on right now. Although not really, because if we're going to talk about racism, it has to be the systemic racism. If we're going to talk about fascism, it has to be meaning liberal society. If we're going to talk about um, what is a domestic terrorist, we're going to nail that down. It means right-wing people. Um, so there's, this is a little bit blurry, but this was in the 60s. Where were we? I got caught up in that. That's great. Uh The meaning of words is rigidly stabilized. Rational persuasion, persuasion to the opposite, is all but precluded. The avenues of entrance are closed to the meaning of words and ideas other than the established one, established by the publicity of the powers that be and verified in their practices. Other words can be spoken and heard. Other ideas can be expressed, but at the massive scale of the conservative majority. Hear that, Wokies? You're a conservative majority now. Outside such enclaves as the intelligentsia, oh, of course, we have to set set them aside, they are immediately evaluated, that is, automatically understood in terms of the public language, a language which determines a priori the direction in which the thought process moves. Thus, the process of reflection ends where it started in the given conditions and relations. In other words, once you have a self-fulfilling language that's being promulgated by a monopolistic media, Everything leads back to where it starts. You don't actually, any speech you try to use to get away, you come right back to the problem. You don't get away from it. It's, again, the weird thing that we're living in the world he created while he's describing it as a problem. It's a very weird thing to read when you understand what's happening and what he's talking about at the same time. Self-validating the argument of the, sorry, it's got a period that shouldn't be there. Self-validating the argument of the discussion repels the contradiction because the antithesis is redefined in terms of the thesis. So in other words, what he says is that when the powers that be are powerful enough, the dialectical process that he believes moves history along is blocked. So we're still in this stupid Hegelian Marxian approach But he says that when the powers that be are sufficient and you don't have that revolutionary mindset, they take the antithesis that should move along the dialectical process to every thesis and bring it back into the thesis by controlling the way that you use language and the way that you think. For example, thesis, we work for peace. Antithesis, we prepare for war or even we wage war. Unification of opposites. That's literally the Hegelian dialectical process, by the way. Preparing for war is working for peace. Of course, this is true, right? It's like the fact that he misses that this is true shows you just how Fruit Loop this guy is. If you don't prepare for war and somebody else, say China, does prepare for war, then you're in trouble. So preparing for war is a necessary precondition for maintaining peace, which no left-wing loon has ever understood. But what does he say? Peace is redefined as necessarily in the prevailing situation, including preparation for war or even war. See how he misses it? And then he goes on, catch this part, check this out. And in this Orwellian form, the meaning of the word peace is stabilized. It's like he just doesn't understand what's going on, which is amazing, given that he literally helped end the Nazis. And yet he thinks that this is Orwellian. And he goes on, it's a, it's just, this is a staggering paragraph. 
Thus, the basic vocabulary of the Orwellian language operates as a priori categories of understanding, performing all content. These conditions invalidate the logic of tolerance, which involves a rational development of meaning and precludes the closing of meaning. Consequently, persuasion through discussion and the equal presentation of opposites, even where it is really equal, easily lose their liberating force as factors of understanding and learning. They are far more likely to strengthen the established thesis and to repel the alternatives. So again, he's absolutely describing Wokeland, and the Wokeland is what has incorporated his logic and uses his logic to do exactly the thing he's saying is terrible. It's really kind of amazing. It's so amazing that that's what's going on. Let's continue. Impartiality to the utmost equal treatment of competing and conflicting issues is indeed a basic requirement for decision-making in the democratic process. It is an equally basic requirement for defining the limits of tolerance. But in a democracy with totalitarian organization, let's say that part again, but in a democracy with totalitarian organization, one more time, but in a democracy with totalitarian organization, I guess we could call that like now, I guess, but it, that's, poor Marcusa. That's what he saw in the world in 1965, is that we were a democracy, but that we had totalitarian organization. Again, we live in the world that he created and calls bad. But in a democracy with totalitarian organization, objectivity may... This is the guy that just warned us about Orwellian language. Objectivity may fulfill a very different function, namely to foster a mental attitude which tends to obliterate the difference between true and false, information and indoctrination, right and wrong. Objectivity may fulfill a very different function if we live in a democracy with totalitarian organization because that which is going to be called objective is going to reinforce the uh, totalitarian state. He says, in fact, the decision between opposed opinions has been made before the presentation and discussion get underway. Made not by a conspiracy or a sponsor or a publisher, not by any dictatorship, but rather by the normal course of events which is the course of administered events, maybe like fake news, and by the mentally, or by the mentality shaped in this course. COVID policy is the perfect example of what he's talking about, but it's on his side, right? The discussion, sorry, the decision between opposed opinions has been made before the presentation and discussion get underway, made not by a conspiracy or a sponsor or a publisher, not by any dictatorship, but rather by the normal course of events and there's the key, which is the course of administered events and by the mentality shaped in this course. You make a bunch of people scared of a virus. You tell them constantly that the virus is out of control. You shape, you administer the course of events, and all of a sudden they become, for people, the so-called, it's in scare quotes, normal course of events, and they behave accordingly. He's criticizing the world he's created. Here, too, it is the whole which determines the truth. Back to the Hegelian stuff. Then the decision asserts itself without any open violation of objectivity in such things as the makeup of a newspaper with the breaking up of vital information into bits interspersed, with, interspersed between extraneous material, irrelevant items, relegating some of the radically negative news to an obscure place. Marcusa had a big issue with the way that newspapers were laid out. Like there would be news and then there's an ad with like some hot chick or something and that pissed him off. And then like the really radical good stuff would be on like, you know, page A26 instead of on the front page. Um, I was really worried about that. We'll see more about the newspapers and news later. So then the decision asserts itself without any open violation of objectivity and such things as the makeup of a newspaper, and the juxtaposition of gorgeous ads with unmitigated horrors. See, that's what I'm talking about. In the introduction and interruption of broadcasting of facts by overwhelming commercials. Really, I mean, nobody likes commercials. I hear you, buddy, but um, we also know how to tune them out. The result is a neutralization of opposites. A neutralization, however, which takes place on the firm grounds of the structural limitations of tolerance and within a performed or preformed, I should say, mentality 
Again, false consciousness is foisted on people, so this creates a limit, a structural limitation on tolerance. Therefore, tolerance itself becomes part of the problem. When a magazine prints side by side a negative and a positive report on the FBI, it fulfills honestly the requirements of objectivity. However, the chances are that the positive wins because the image of the institution is deeply engraved in the mind of the people. That's a subtle point, right? So objective objectivity would say, oh, here's this good thing. Well, not really, but the fairness doctrine kind of objectivity. Here's a good story about the FBI. Here's a bad story about the FBI. What he's saying is that people have a predisposition to believe that the FBI is good. Maybe that was true in 1965. Ooh, it's a little different now, isn't it, now that it's woke. Um, but that pre pre-existing belief about the goodness and the, the what does he call it, the uh, image of the institution is deeply engraved. He says that even if you're you're being honest and showing here's a positive story, here's a negative story, the, the positive image skews things so that you're, you're the, the prevailing attitude skews things so that you're now going to believe in a particular way. You're going to believe the positive story more than the negative story. I don't think that's actually true. I actually don't think that's true, but that's the point he's making. Or if a newscaster reports the torture and murder of civil rights workers in the name of, in the same unemotional tone he uses to describe the stock market or the weather, or with the same great emotion with which he says his commercials, then such objecti then such objectivity is spurious. More, it offends against humanity and truth by being calm where one should be enraged by refraining from accusation where accusation is in the facts themselves. So here he's complaining that newscasters are trying to be as detached as possible when, if it's an emotional story, they should be editorializing. Doesn't that sound like the world, the, the thing that he wants, doesn't that sound like the world we live in and isn't it shit? Again, it's amazing to read this essay in, in the present day. He's arguing that we should edit, that the newscaster should be editorializing when things are outrageous, but of course that means that presupposes that they get to determine what's outrageous. Granted, the example he gives is outrageous. Um, murder, torture, and murder of civil rights workers, comparing it to stock market. Okay, I hear you, but the point is, journalistic objectivity is supposed to editorialize as little as possible and rep report the facts and let people do what he says should be there. Right? He says by refraining from accusation where the accusation is in the facts themselves. So the editorializing shouldn't be necessary, but he's calling for editorializing. Now we have the super editorializing, constantly editorializing news. How's that working out for us? How's that working out for us? It constantly sells paranoia and hysteria and drives us all nuts. And in fact, it has sided with repressive tolerance in the way that it does it. Sorry, you got what you wanted, Marcusa. It's not that good. Okay, the tolerance expressed in such impartiality serves to minimize or even absolve prevailing intolerance and suppression. If objectivity has anything to do with truth, and if truth is more than a matter of logic and science, there's this critical theory in being injected, then this kind of objectivity is false and this kind of tolerance inhuman. And if it is necessary to break the established universe of meaning and the practice enclosed in this universe in order to enable man to find out what is true and false, this deceptive impartiality would also have to be abandoned. The people exposed to this impartiality are no tabula rasa. They are no blank slates. They are indoctrinated by the conditions under which they live and think and which they do not transcend. Remember, if you're not a critical theorist, you have false consciousness. That's what he's telling you right here. The people watching the news are too stupid to figure these things out for themselves, even though the accusation is in the facts themselves. Why? Why? Because the people exposed to this impartiality are no tabula rasa. They are indoctrinated by the conditions under which they live and think, in which they do not transcend. It's easy to watch people watch woke news and like not understand that CNN sucks. Like These are blue-pilled people, not red-pilled people. That's what he's talking about. He says the people are not red-pilled. And so this is horrible. The news is tricking them all because they're not red-pilled. That's really what he's saying, except he would be super against red-pilling, except he's arguing for red-pilling. Kind of funny, isn't it? We live in an amazing time. To enable them to become autonomous, to find by themselves what is true and what is false for man in the existing society, they would have to be freed from the prevailing indoctrination, red-pilled, which is no longer recognized as indoctrination, blue-pilled. But this means that the trend would have to be reversed. They would have to get information slanted in the opposite direction. 
Oh, so we have to propagandize them the other way to get them to red pill. No, actually just seeing the truth. If you want to red pill somebody, have them Google or search. We don't Google anymore. Have them search something like Trump was right. Have them search the way that the media mishandled um, examples of Trump and just completely obliterated. Have them show them side by side distortions in the media. You don't have to slant anything. So he's wrong here. But that's the, this is the crux of his repressive tolerance argument. The truth actually sets you free, Marcusa. The truth. Showing the juxtaposition, showing the asymmetry sets you free, not slanting it the other way. That's the key error that he made to establish this totalitarianism that has now threatened our democracy genuinely in his wonderful image. Okay, we'll go back to him because we're, we're getting long on this. We'll have to wrap this up. But... This, but this means that the trend would have to be reversed. They would have to get information slanted in the opposite direction. For the facts are never given immediately and never accessible immediately. They are established, mediated by those who made them. The truth, the whole truth, surpasses these facts and requires the rupture with their appearance. This rupture, prerequisite and token of all freedom of thought and speech, cannot be accomplished within the established framework of abstract tolerance and spurious objectivity because these are precisely the factors which precondition the mind against the rupture. I think he's wrong here, but he's making the same argument that we see later in people like Christy Dotson, who is a critical race epistemologist, uh, theory of knowledge uh, researcher, who claim that within the system, the system conditions you, you have false consciousness, and when you're trapped within that system, you can't possibly understand anything outside of it. You, The things you think are true, the things you think are the truth, have you locked inside and you don't possess what Dotson called the epistemic resources to be able to understand something bigger. I think they're wrong. I think they're actually wrong. I think that showing people the truth, showing people the juxtap juxtaposition of truth and lie, showing them, in fact, the distortions, the hypocrisy, actually is a thing that sets people free. I think that, Mar that Marcusa and later Christy Dawson, I think that they are wrong. But this is his argument, okay? So that you have to show them the other side because if you don't slant it the other way, you couldn't possibly rupture their, them out of the, the, the closed system that they're in because the closed system is closed and everything that it does, the logic always brings itself back into itself. And if you've ever called somebody an NPC, that's basically what you're talking about. You think that they're just trapped within this bubble, they can't get out of it, and that's what's going on. So we'll do one more paragraph, we'll wrap it up, because um, I think it kind of breaks there. I don't want these to be too long. We're almost halfway through now, though. The factual barriers which totalitarian democracy, again, that totalitarian democracy, erects against the efficacy of qualitative dissent are weak and pleasant enough compared with the practices of a dictatorship which claims to educate the people in the truth. Okay, so he's talking about the United States social system as a democratic, a totalitarian democracy, I should say. And what he's saying is that it conditions people into false consciousness, thinking that they think they're learning the truth, not, and it, 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 he's basically saying that if this was a dictatorship, people would see it. But because it's not a dictatorship, people can't see it because it's weak and pleasant enough. It erects factual barriers against the efficacy of qualitative dissent and that those are weak and pleasant enough compared with the practices of a, of a dictatorship, which means that you probably aren't going to see it. With all its limitations and distortions, democratic tolerance is under all circumstances more humane than an institutionalized intolerance which sacrifices the rights and liberties of the living generations for the sake of future generations. Good point, Marcusa. Hear that, Wokies? Hear that, Tech? Hear that, Democrats? Hear that, Oligarchs? Hear it? Let me read that again. With all its limitations and distortions, democratic tolerance is under all circumstances more humane than an institutionalized intolerance which sacrifices the rights and liberties of the living generations for the sake of future generations. It means you're doing it wrong. You became the, the he's, he's saying you become the totalitarians if you're doing that. Democrats, Wokies, oligarchs, CEOs. The question is whether this is the only alternative. So we're going to get into the meat of the essay. We'll pick this up in part three. But he says, I shall presently try to suggest the direction in which an answer may be sought in any case, I think there's supposed to be a period there. In any case, the contrast is not between democracy in the abstract and dictatorship 
in the abstract. So we're going to pick up in part three talking about what he means by democracy, what he means by dictatorship, and what these things really boil down to as forms of government, how they're different. So, so far, what, how can we summarize parts one and parts two? Part one, he makes the case that there's these people that are like himself, that are critical theorists who understand the world better than you do, and that tolerance of everything they do is very important, and intolerance of things that oppose them is also very important. In the second part now, we have him elaborating on that, and what we really saw here, and I thought this is a very striking thing, I think we're going to run into some more of this as we go through the essay and the later parts, Again, this is part two out of some number. Uh, there, it, You should go back and listen to one if you haven't. Stick around for part three when it comes out. But what we, we have here is this really weird paradoxical feeling. I just think it's delicious. Where the world that he is advocating for has become the totalitarianism that he didn't realize that he was creating. And so at once, Marcusa, as we read him, is describing the problem, but the problem is him. This is the benefit of 65 years of history having, transpi- having, having transpired since he wrote this. The thing he wrote was totalitarian, and people could see it at the time, but the people who took it up didn't see it. They thought it was liberatory. And now the logic of that thing has been in the world long enough and has been put into the world forcefully enough and effectively enough to where you to read this essay is to live in this just exquisite paradox where the thing he's criticizing is the thing he has created. And it's just delightful to try to imagine where he would fall on this issue. Uh, I still think he would fall on the wrong side of it. But it's clear now, it's clear now that the logic, the thing that he recommended in this essay, which I claim is the logic of the world we live in today coming from all left politics in Western democracies, the logic that he unleashed was totalitarian and the fruit of that has been borne out. And we can now see We don't have to guess. We don't have to argue. We can now see the logic that he recommended that has taken over the world is a giant piece of shit. So that's the end of part two. Um, I hope you enjoyed this one. We will pick it up with part three soon. Um, Again, we're reading Repressive Tolerance, 1965 essay by Herbert Marcuse that was republished in the reform we're reading now in a book called Critique of Pure Tolerance in 1969. I claim that this essay was the justification for the riots of 67, 68, and 69 in large part, given that Marcuse was a big rock star of left thought when he published it. And I claim that its logic has been reinserted by the woke largely since the 1990s and has become the dominant mode of left thought and is this essay is therefore the explanation for so much what we see this is part two of a series stick around for part three i'll catch you then